Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. It's hard to believe that the first time I talked about COVID-19 on my podcast was over 13 months ago. I remember back then hearing from so many of you. Many of you said, I had no idea COVID was a thing or was going to be a thing until I heard about it on all things. And here we are over a year and a ton of life changes later. At this point, I know we are all so tired of talking about COVID and the vaccines, but we seem to be at a truly crucial moment in the fight against COVID. It's tempting now to let our guard down, but it seems more important than ever to be engaging in this conversation. As of right now, U.S. hospitalizations and cases are increasing, predominantly among younger people. This is mainly due to the B117 variant. That was the one that was originally found in the United Kingdom a few months ago. It's causing more severe disease among 30 to 50-year-olds. So while younger people are less likely to die from COVID-19, 33% of that younger population will have long COVID symptoms, including neurological issues from that. Those issues can last for months. And those who are most likely to suffer from long COVID are previously healthy women in their 40s. So that would be me. Epidemiologists say we're in a race between getting people vaccinated and seeing people succumb to sickness caused by these variants. I know there are really strong and really mixed feelings about the vaccine, but we're going there on today's episode. Personally, I myself felt very skeptical of the idea of getting a vaccine for myself and for my children, for my family last fall. I definitely was one of those skeptics. In conversations with friends, I was quick to say, I am not so sure about that. It seems like these vaccines have been developed very fast. I don't think I want to be at the front of the line. I might actually sit this one out. That was what was going through my mind last fall. And many, many people still feel that way. And that is 100% understandable. I know that. We all want to make wise and informed choices for ourselves and for our families. So some hesitancy, of course, is to be expected. But to that end, on this episode, I really want to dive into two things. First, I want to help all of us apply truth to this issue. I want to help all of us to not be misled by misinformation. And secondly, I want to help all of us apply a biblical ethic to this issue. I want to help us think Christianly about it. So to do that, I am so thankful, so blessed to have two very well-educated and deep-thinking friends on today's show with me. They're here with me to help us all think about, to think carefully, to think truthfully, to think biblically about the vaccines. Andrea and Lauren, welcome to the show. Can you guys introduce yourselves a little bit? Tell us about yourselves, both professionally and personally. Andrea, why don't you go first? Hi, thanks for having us. So I'm Andrea Calvert. I obtained my doctorate of pharmacy from the University of Oklahoma and then completed two years of my postgraduate training um, through residency. I'm currently a clinical pharmacy specialist at Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm board certified in pediatric pharmacy. But I think more importantly, I'm a Christian woman that's in fellowship with other believers seeking to follow Jesus. I'm also a mama to two adorable little girls. I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, And I'm a friend to many in all walks of life. So thanks so much for having me today. Well, thanks, Andrea. Lauren. Hi, I'm Lauren. Uh, First and foremost, I'm also a follower of Christ. 
I'm married to Ryan, and we have three children, ages seven, four, and one. My educational background is in pharmacy as well. I graduated from pharmacy school in 2013 with a doctor of pharmacy degree, and I have practiced in a variety of community pharmacy settings since that point. Uh, Currently, I spend most of my days homeschooling my children. Um, I'm also really involved in our local church, and I blog for my husband's consumer goods business, which sells a really unique product of camel's milk, (laughs) but that will be for another day. (laughs) Um, So thank you so much, Jen, for inviting me on the podcast. I'm a longtime listener and just so grateful for the work that you do here and in this space. So it's such a joy and privilege to join you today. Well, um, all my listeners, y'all need to know I had to bring in the big guns um, because this this topic is over my head, and I felt like I could not do it justice if I was to just do um, a you know a podcast monologue on this topic of COVID nineteen and the vaccine. So I'm really grateful that both Andrea and Lauren go to my church, and we are friends, and they just have expertise and education that I do not have. And I thought, what better? You know, I, I presented this idea to them like let. Let's talk as if we're chatting at the park, as if we're having a conversation with other moms at the playground, and we're just chatting as neighbors and as a community about things that we're concerned about, things that we're worried about, or things that we're excited about and feeling positive, encouraged about. So um, I'm just really grateful that they've come to help bring all of the science and the research to the table, but not only that, a Christian worldview, a biblical perspective on that. So let me give you guys an idea of where we're going. I want you to, I just kind of want to give you a quick like table of contents for this episode so that you know what we're going to talk about as we keep going forward. We are going to break things up into basically four sections on this episode. First, we're going to talk about vaccine myths and misinformation. Those are widely circulating. We all know that. Second, we're going to look at the quality and the efficacy of the vaccines that are available. Third, we will look at some common misconceptions that people have after getting the vaccine. And fourth, we are going to look at the moral or the spiritual, the biblical implications of this cultural moment for the church and the broader community. So let's go ahead and dive in. First, we're going to talk about the issue of what's true. What is true? Let's tackle vaccine myths and misinformation first. So Lauren, can you start us off? I know one popular um, misconception or misinformation is that the vaccine will give you coronavirus. Tell us, talk to us about that. Yeah, so to answer this question, I want to back up just a little bit and give an analogy of how vaccines work. Uh, I hope this is helpful to you. It's helpful to me when I'm thinking about it. So imagine a cat, and in front of the cat, you have a live mouse, and you also have a fake mouse. (laughs) The chances are that the cat will attack both, but there's one big difference between the result. With the live mouse, you will have live guts on your porch. (laughs) And with the fake mouse, not so much. So let me try to explain this using uh, applying this to vaccines. So the cat is our immune systems, and we're trying to activate our immune system to respond. Uh, So the live mouse represents the real infection. So say the real infection of coronavirus If you were to become infected with coronavirus, we know all the signs and symptoms that you would be in bed, you'd lose your sense of smell, fever, all of those type of things. That's our body's innate response. And that's the first 
defense that our immune system puts up to help us clear the infection. After we clear the infection, there's actually work that goes on in your body on a cellular level to help your body remember uh, what it just fought off to keep you from getting sick again. And so that is what we're tapping into with the fake mouse. So with the fake mouse, when we're giving the vaccine, we are tapping into what's called our adaptive immune response, which is that cellular response that happens after the fact. And the great thing is in most situations, you don't have to deal with all the guts on the porch, (laughs) (laughs) but your body does get to remember and recognize the virus so that when it comes in contact with it in an, at another time, then it knows exactly how to respond. Um, so with the vaccines, we are essentially giving this altered form of the virus without actually activating the guts, so to speak, <laughs> of the live mouse. So, okay. um, yeah, and then that's I would helpful. say as far as, so that's kind of how vaccines work in general, but, uh, as far as the coronavirus actually giving you the vaccine. So in times past, you may have received a vaccine where you received a live strand that's been weakened in some way, but that's not the case with coronavirus vaccine. We are not actually receiving the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. We are receiving these DNA, mRNA vaccines that are new and novel and everyone has had questions about. Mm -hmm. So I can explain that a little bit more if you'd like to hear. Definitely talk to us about the mRNA technology and just how these vaccines were developed. We'd love to hear that. Yeah, for sure. So again, you're not receiving any kind of live coronavirus strand with these vaccines. So with DNA and mRNA, all the roads lead to mRNA inside your body's cell. And I know that we're kind of unfamiliar with these terms and and maybe with our cell biology. So all this feels really awkward to try to wrap our minds around. Mm -hmm. And I totally get that. Uh, mRNA stands for messenger RNA. And the way that I like to think about this vaccine technology is it's like a 3D printer. Um, I personally don't have a 3D printer, but this is what I understand that they're pretty sweet because you can have this digital image on your computer and then it can print out this 3D live thing in front of you. And so think about that when you're thinking about these new vaccines. So in this analogy, the digital image is the mRNA in your cell. And it's kind of like this code that is put into the computer that's going to pop out this 3D image. So in your cell, uh, that mRNA gets read and uh, what it reads is that it, that it reads that they need to produce this spike protein of the coronavirus. And so that's actually created, like think about a 3D image of this spike mm-hmm. protein being the result of that mRNA mm-hmm. being read in your cell. And then your cell takes that out of itself, sends it out, and then your body's immune system is able to attack it and fight it. So when we're giving these vaccines, no virus is actually being given to you. So it can't give you the coronavirus. Instead, the mRNA digital file produces this 3D spike protein that is then taken out of your cell and then your immune system responds to it. Okay. Um, Lauren, how long has mRNA technology been around? I mean, I know, like I said at the beginning, one reason I was so hesitant and sort of fearful of the vaccines initially was it seemed like this was all brand new and developed all of the sudden 
Can you just speak to that really quick? Yeah. So this technology, well, I guess it all starts with mRNA being discovered. I believe that was discovered back in 1961. So for quite some time is when we first learned about mRNA in cells. And uh, this technology itself has also been around. We've been using it in various types of medicines. And so the scientific framework has been around and uh, we were just able to apply this to vaccines um, during this time. And one other thing that I think is helpful to know is that the mRNA vaccines, there was eight of them that were actually entered for clinical testing before the pandemic, but they just didn't have time to go to market. So this is the first time that they were able to kind of be brought to completion and go to market. So it is new in that this is the first one that's hit the market, but the technology is not new. Um, and it, there's been extensive study and it's almost like it's just harvest time. Like these seeds have been planted, they've been cultivated through the years. And it was really a grace to us that we were able to harvest this vaccine at a time and use it for the pandemic. Okay. That's really helpful. Thanks for that. Um, Andrea, talk to us about some other common things that you have heard people are concerned about when it comes to the COVID vaccines. So there's a really strong, informative anti-vaccine movement across the world, and we're, we're seeing that. There are people out there that are doing anything and everything they can to infiltrate the messaging on social media and media headlines to make people afraid of these vaccines. You see a whole host of conspiracy theories and active attempts at misinformation and disinformation. So I do think it's really important to address some of these. One that's brought up often is that these vaccines aren't safe mm. or, uh, or effective. And, you know, the vaccines, they were evaluated in tens of thousands of participants mm. in the clinical trials. And no corners were cut in the development of the vaccines. They met the FDA's rigorous safety standards for safety and efficacy and even for manufacturing. I think it it bodes to that these weren't rushed in a sense that they were pushed through the process. It was more that we just had all the resources aligned. Now we have the funding. We have a global call to arms that everybody is now prioritizing these vaccines so that we can work together to um, come up with them. So I would just um, urge everybody to know that um, the the safety information that we have and the clinical trials that they went through are no different than what any other vaccine would go through. They just were compressed in a shorter amount of time because we had priority and um, the bureaucratic system working with us so that we could evaluate those quickly. Yeah, I thought I found that to be really helpful um, back in December when I heard an interview with Francis Collins, the director of the National Institute of Health, and he just helped me understand that corners were not cut, mm-hmm. that there was still um, a tremendous amount of testing, that all of the protocols were adhered to, but as you say, it was a global call to arms that everybody, you know, everybody's on, all hands on deck, um, so corners weren't cut. Rather, mm-hmm. um, everybody was ready to um, push this through in a timely fashion so that we could save lives. So that's a helpful distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some other concerns that you hear, Andrea, in your job and just as a mom and as a pharmacist? Sure. Another one that I've heard quite often is that there are microchips that are mm. actually in the COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. You know, this rumor probably has several different sources that are contributing 
ding to it. Some are probably conspiracy theory origination. And then um, some are likely stemming from the ingredient list and the mRNA vaccines. It lists liponina particles. And there was a, a video, I don't know if you guys saw it, but it was circulating on social media that was suggesting that because it contained these nanoparticles, it was referring to a small computer or a chip. And then that was the microchip that was being implanted. Wow. And, and if we think about mm-hmm. it, you know, the term nano is simply, it's a unit of size. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the term nanoparticle is really referring to this tiny lipid droplet. And when we say lipid, that's just meaning that's a fat substance. So it's not water soluble. Mm -hmm. And basically what I like to think of is Lauren was telling us, you know, how if we think of the mRNA as as the blueprint Mm -hmm. or that digital file, it needs something to help it get to where it needs to go. And so these lipid nanoparticles are the delivery Mm -hmm. vehicles or the little tiny shuttles that get it to where it needs to go. So that's that's solely what the lipid nanoparticle is. It's not actually a microchip. Okay. That's helpful. That's helpful. I mean, yeah, we're the, you know, as a member of the very average public, <laughs> we are diving into things like ingredient lists and trying to interpret those on our own. So it's helpful to hear that from you, Andrea. Thanks. Um, Lauren, can you talk to us about one, um, concern that I definitely hear a lot in our own community, just our peer group, Mm -hmm. um, the issue of infertility, the vaccines causing infertility. Yes. So I believe this myth came from a German doctor who I'm sure had great intentions and was worried about a protein that is in our placentas and needed for fertility that shares a similar makeup to the spike protein. And so the thought process was that if we give this vaccine that has these spike proteins that are taken out of our cells and we develop antibodies, which mean they would try to fight that, then potentially we might fight these proteins that we actually need in our placentas and that might contribute to infertility. Hmm. So this fear has not, uh, it didn't play out in the way that he was thinking though. Um, Testing has disproved this in studies, but I like to think about it kind of like a, phone number. So if we have a phone number that has three or four overlapping numbers, but the other numbers are different. When I dial both of those phone numbers, I don't expect to reach the same person. Mm. Or to use the digital file example, say you have one digital file that has a string of numbers that are similar to this other digital file, but they have different numbers too. And so you're not going to pull up the same thing on your computer screen. And so it's kind of like that, um, though it was potentially a thought that we should have have thought through, um, our bodies are able to distinguish the difference between the spike protein of the coronavirus and the protein that we need in our placentas. And so this was disproven through extensive studies that have uh, been going on. And then additionally, if we were to play this out, 
And we just look at the amount of women who have received coronavirus uh, naturally, like they've actually been infected with coronavirus, you build similar antibodies. So if this were the case, we would expect to see infertility showing up as a result of having a natural infection of the coronavirus, and we're just not seeing that either. So it's been disproven on, on several fronts. That is really comforting to hear because I do, I know, you know, friends who are really concerned about getting the vaccine because they are in their childbearing years. Yes. And you guys both are, right? I mean, you both have young babies. (laughs) It's a big concern. (laughs) Um, Chances are that the Lord might give you more children. Mm -hmm. um, And yet you both have been vaccinated and you feel personally confident that this is not a concern. Yes. Personally confident. And I, as an addition, I also breastfeed my daughter and, and I've received the vaccine and I felt confident to do that as well. Yeah, that's really helpful. What about women who are pregnant? Um, can you talk to us about the concerns um, or the, or the sure. reasons maybe that should be pursued? You know, getting a vaccine when you're pregnant or this mRNA vaccine when you're pregnant, you can absolutely do that and do that safely. We know that in pregnancy, that actually puts women at a higher risk for severe disease. So we're already worried about those women The initial vaccine studies didn't um, include pregnant women from enrolling. However, some of the women did become pregnant. You know, it wasn't Mm. it wasn't part of the trial, but they did, and no complications were actually reported with that. There are actually some ongoing trials right now that are currently um, looking at pregnant women and actually women who are breastfeeding mothers to really assess this scientifically to see. And we've got some great data coming out, and it's really, really encouraging. We're seeing, you know, not only that these women, whenever they're getting the vaccine, they're delivering healthy babies, and then these babies are actually having antibodies Mm. to the virus. Wow. So we're seeing that that is being protective for the babies. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing the same thing in the studies with the lactating women. So these women who are breastfeeding their infants, we're seeing that in their milk, that they're producing antibodies that are getting passed on to the baby. And it's honestly one of the first reasons I couldn't wait to get vaccinated Mm -hmm. is because I am breastfeeding my nine-month-old. And it was my way to Mm -hmm. hopefully protect her. I I pursued that to to hopefully be giving her antibodies through my milk um, because she is too young for a vaccine at this point. Wow. So, yes, the... um, the recommendation is that the benefit would be great for mm-hmm. uh, pregnant women and it would outweigh the risk mm. for them. Okay. Thank you. That is really helpful, you guys. Um, Andrea, another uh, something that I hear a lot about, a concern that I hear a lot about, is in relation to autoimmune disease. That's something that multiple friends have brought up. They've said, you know, I'm hesitant about pursuing the vaccine because I have this autoimmune disease. I'm worried that the vaccine will trigger it. Can you go down that path with us and um, help the listeners understand the relationship between autoimmune disease and the COVID vaccines? Sure. You know, research has actually indicated that patients with autoimmune and inflammatory conditions when compared to the general population, may be at an increased risk for associated hospitalizations and even worse disease outcomes. 
So I think you're bringing up a, a really good um, point that we, we need to talk about this. And the CDC is recommending that any patients with underlying conditions receive the vaccine because the benefits of the vaccine really outweighing the risks from the natural disease. Mm. You know, there were no direct studies that are fully um, focused on patients with autoimmune conditions, but we do know that some of the trials had individuals that had autoimmune conditions in in them, um, and there were no imbalances observed with the occurrence of symptoms that were consistent with autoimmune conditions or inflammatory disorders in patients who received the vaccine versus placebo. And actually, earlier this year, the American College of Rheumatology released some detailed clinical guidance for providers and are recommending that the vaccine really outweighs the risk of disease in this patient population. They've also released some really great guidance for providers, too, in regarding their immunomodulatory medication and the timing of the vaccine, really in an effort to optimize the vaccine response for these patients. So bottom line, an autoimmune disorder does not contraindicate you from getting vaccinated. And I'd really encourage any listeners that have autoimmune conditions to talk with their rheumatologists and healthcare providers. Okay. So it sounds like, just to make sure I understand what you're saying, Andrea, that the data, the expertise at this time is that the risk of a COVID infection is greater than the potential risk of a vaccine, that the vaccine is going to be, is going to protect our friends with autoimmune disease. Absolutely. We're seeing, you know, that those patients are at risk for severe disease and hospitalization and, you know, a, a small risk of a possible autoimmune flare that we can control with medication. While it hasn't been proven that that will happen, uh-huh. we didn't see that in the studies with the patients that did have uh-huh. autoimmune conditions. Although since we don't have trials right. in these patient populations, we can't say for sure that they wouldn't have a flare with it, but that far, far, far outweighs their risk of severe hospitalization um, from getting the, the natural infection. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, Lauren, another issue that has come up and something that I for sure personally was very concerned about and something that I wanted to research well myself is that of the the idea that there are aborted fetal cells in our vaccines. Can you tell, tell us, give us the lowdown there? Yeah, and this topic weighs heavily with me as well. So I think in order to answer this, we have to really understand what a cell line is. And it's not necessarily super intuitive. Uh, So a cell line, it begins with some distant cell that was taken from some human source, so a tissue from a human, and then those cells were replicated in labs over and over and over and over and over and over and over again (laughs) for decades. (laughs) So I could have added a few more overs. Uh, The cell that descends from that original cell is called the cell line. And the descendant cells are used in biomedical research. So I think the cell line that is in question here is the HEK-293. 
and it's been used prolifically in medicine for decades. It was taken from a source, a tissue source back in 1973 from a doctor in the Netherlands, and he can't confirm the source of this tissue. So it could have been from an aborted baby or it could have been from uh, some other tissue source. So, um, I just want to emphasize for the purposes of this that the vaccine itself does not contain any descendant cells. So all of those cells that have replicated over time, the vaccine itself contains none of those cells. It was just in the research that was performed. So the the original cells are long gone anyway, but even those descendant cells are not in the vaccines. Mm -hmm. They were used for the vaccine research. Um, They have also, I would add, been used so prolifically in modern medicine that you would really have to disconnect entirely Mm -hmm. in order to disassociate yourself from this Mm -hmm. cell line. Uh, And I know you're going to speak more into the ethical Mm -hmm. side of that. Um, There was, so just to emphasize, there was no actual cells taken from babies, aborted babies, in research. Uh, This was a cell line that was taken decades ago that is replicated over and over and over in a lab and those cells were used in the research of it. Um, I would also add they don't really encourage more abortions from biomedical research by supporting it by supporting it this was a big concern for me so I mm-hmm. um, I definitely am happy to speak to this part but they really want a stable cell line so one that has been proven to be able to replicate over and over again so they're not just trying to pull cells from any source. The reason they use this one essentially is because it's so established. And now we do have better protections and um, approvals in place to keep this from happening again, uh, to keep a compromised cell line from potentially happening again. So uh, that's from the scientific part, but I'm, I'm sure there's more to speak on on the ethical part. No, that's really helpful. It's really helpful to know there are no aborted cells in these vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, so thanks for, for clarifying that. Um, any listener to All Things knows that I am passionate about the pro-life cause, and it's something that I speak to maybe on every episode, just the Imago Dei and the, the worth and the beauty of every human life, including um, life in the womb. And so I do think that pro-life Christians are rightly asking themselves and asking one another if getting the vaccine somehow promotes abortion. That's a good and worthy question. I'm so glad people are um, having these conversations. But what I do, what I hear you saying, Lauren, and what I want to encourage the listeners is that it's just, it's very unlikely that the use of this cell line, the HEK293 cell line, is going to lead to additional abortions in order to expand the number of fetal tissue cell lines. And as you said, that's because this specific cell line is already established. That means these cell lines have been used. They've been studied by scientists for the past 50 years. They've been validated for their safety and scientists understand their characteristics. So current vaccine manufacturers are not going to try to get new human fetal cells from recent abortions because those new cells would be unknown. They'd be untested and they wouldn't be approved by the FDA and other regulating agencies. Um, Vaccine manufacturers and researchers are not going to waste that time, basically, bottom line. They're not going to put the time, the effort, the money into getting new fetal cells for the COVID-19 vaccines when this HEK293 cell line is already available. So bottom line there is getting the vaccine does not drive the abortion industry. 
But of course, as pro-life Christians, we want to always be ready to oppose abortion. And we want to always be ready to oppose unethical means of research. But taking the vaccine, even if it was developed at some point along the way with the use of aborted cells, does not mean that you as a vaccine recipient condone or support or somehow endorse abortion. We can actively advocate against abortion and advocate for ethical science while at the same time taking advantage of science that has already been in use for decades in taking these vaccines to protect lives that are vulnerable just right here and right now. Um, I don't want to, I know that I do have many listeners who are so concerned about it, so I don't want to gloss over it. I know that this is a complicated issue and there's not a law here for us as Christians to follow. It's understandable if pro-life Christians come down on this issue, you know, specifically in some different ways. It's good for us to struggle with it. It's good for us um, to be, you know, leery of doing anything um, that involves the use of fetal tissue. I'm going to link a few more articles in the show notes there. By the way, there will be so many links in the show notes for those of you who want to do a deep dive into all of the data that we're talking about. But I'm also going to link some articles that are written by different ethicists and philosophers and Christian thinkers. So to quote one scholar, and I'll link the article, he says, we are... We are already deeply entangled with HEK-293 in innumerable ways, given its use in laboratory testing related to food products, cosmetics, medical technologies, including many other vaccines and more. You cannot eat at a restaurant without becoming complicit. You cannot use makeup without becoming complicit. You cannot enjoy the fruits of modern medicine without becoming complicit. If we are willing to excuse ourselves of complicity in relation to cosmetics and processed foods, it hardly seems reasonable to draw a red line at potentially life-saving pandemic-ending vaccines. So I personally, where I personally land on this issue, and it's one that Lauren and I have talked about at length Mm -hmm. and we've prayed about, and we just, we've tried to really do our due diligence. So where I personally land on this issue is that sitting out the vaccines is not a practical way to advance the pro-life cause. There are other ways for us to be pushing back on abortion in this immediate moment. For example, maybe serving at a pregnancy resource center, serving as a foster care family, getting involved in programs in your community that serve marginalized women. These these are the immediate needs of the moment that will, in fact, impact the number of abortions that are performed today or tomorrow or next week. At the same time, we must admit that we live in a world where fetal cells derived from abortion show up in many and varied places. So we do have work to do, and we should be advocating for better and more ethical and life-affirming research. So hopefully for those of you who are concerned about that, we've kind of cleared it up. Lauren's given some science, I've given some ethics, um, and there's always more to talk about in the show notes. So be sure to visit that. Okay, so I feel like we have covered myths and misinformation. Of course, there's there's more out there. We can't cover everything in this one episode, but we've we've done a good job, I think, of covering some of the things. So second, let's talk about the quality and the efficacy of the vaccines. So I just want to hear from you guys. Um, you guys can go back and forth, however you want to tackle this, but I want to know why you guys feel good about these vaccines. Why do you feel confident about these COVID-19 vaccines? And why do you want people to get them? Yeah, I would say I feel good and confident about them because I trust the research behind them and I trust the experts in this field. 
I think you've brought us on as somewhat of an expert, (laughs) (laughs) but I would really appeal to experts more expert than me. (laughs) And I trust them and I trust the unified voice that all of these experts have globally, not only in the United States, Mm. but globally. Uh, And, you know, essentially we're all trusting someone, even if we don't trust these people, we're more than likely trusting some other voice. So uh, I think my confidence comes from them. And then I would also add just that the we are essentially living in a phase three trial, which is when a medicine is being tested before it hits the market. This is a phase of the trials where they are documenting every possible adverse effect. And then they will end up listing those in the commercials where Mm -hmm. it it goes on and on and on and on (laughs) about possible adverse effects. And so I just really believe that this data is being furiously gathered and it's really unprecedented that we have data coming from millions of people uh, being vaccinated at this time. So I think those are the foundations that I stand on mm. where I feel really good and confident about the vaccine. Okay. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with Lauren. I think this is one of the most monitored vaccines we've had in US history and that's incredible. You know, our monitoring systems, they we have old established systems that we're using and then we also have new real-time systems that are that are working for this vaccine too and I think we'll probably talk a little bit about it later but that these systems are working mm. and I think that's what really, you know, helps us put our trust in in the system and that these vaccines are they're safe they're not only efficacious or working, but they're working really well. Mm -hmm. You know, when the FDA set out to just have at least one vaccine Mm -hmm. to help this pandemic, they said, we just want at least 40 to 50% efficacy. And we've blown that out of the water with the mRNA vaccines Mm -hmm. and other Mm -hmm. vaccines. We're in the upwards of, you know, 90% or more. So I think that is is really, really hopeful for all of us mm-hmm. um, that we're just not only seeing that robust safety data from the clinical trials, but as Lauren alluded, now we have millions of people who have been vaccinated and we're seeing that real-time safety and efficacy data. And mm-hmm. I also want to mention, we've talked a lot about vaccines, obviously, but they're one of the most, um, we have the most data of any medicine that we use in vaccines. So I think that's mm-hmm. also, mm-hmm. We, we know so much about them. Just vaccines in general. Mm-hmm. Vaccines in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really helpful because the headlines are so inflammatory. Mm-hmm. There's so much circulating um, about the um, you know negative side effects and, and otherwise that I think that can overshadow the sort of sensation media can overshadow. So I appreciate you guys kind of bringing us back to what's true and what's real. And that is, as you say, Lauren, we're kind of living in like a phase three trial Mm -hmm. where millions of people around the globe are walking through this and we're able to monitor in a global way Mm -hmm. um, the outcome. And what we're seeing is that the outcome's really good, mm-hmm. like unprecedented to use the overused word of the last year, <laughs> but they're <laughs> yes. unprecedented in how good the vaccines are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think even, you know, even somebody who's immersed in science, like myself, I'll see the headlines and I'll be taken aback yeah. for a minute because it's, it's scary and it's emotional. Yeah. And then I have to draw myself to the data and, mm-hmm. and to really distilling down, you know, what do we know and what is true rather mm-hmm. than just reading the headlines? Because I think that can scare anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Flesh that out a little bit more for us in terms of 
what do we say to people who feel hesitant to get vaccinated because we don't know the long-term effects? So I hear what you guys are saying about the data that's available, but what about the person who's like, well, I want to see what life is like for the vaccinated person 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. Speak to that person. Yeah, you know, long-term side effects are really unlikely and a serious side effect that might cause a long-term health problem it would be extremely rare after the COVID-19 vaccination, but as we talk about their risk with everything, so really the vast majority of our side effects are going to occur very soon after mm-hmm. the vaccination, within hours, and mm-hmm. then most within two to three months. And the reason we know that is because of all of our monitoring of all the other vaccines we've ever given. We know it happens within that time frame typically. And so we have that data from clinical trials and now from our real world experience. So um, as millions of people are getting vaccinated, we're able to monitor that. So I might argue against a little bit that we don't have this long-term data. We really would expect to see any um, severe thing that's going to happen happen within usually that three-month period. And then severe reactions to a vaccine are, are really rare, around one in a million, which, you know, to kind of put that into perspective for us, and, and not to downplay that, but to put it into perspective, your risk of getting struck by lightning on your way to get the vaccine is one in a million. Okay. And so <laughs> we have to think about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, okay, let's bring this straight to the headlines of this week. We are seeing the Johnson and Johnson vaccine put on pause because um, after, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, if I, my numbers are off, but after 6.8 million people in the United States have received yep. the vaccine, um, six women experienced blood clotting. So they said, let's out of an abundance of caution, let's press pause. And, um, I, you know, just being really transparent, I received the Johnson and Johnson vaccine 13 days ago. Tomorrow will be two weeks for me in terms of having received it. So, and, and it's my age group, it's women right, in my age right. group that are experiencing the blood clotting. So help, help me understand that side effect and help the listener understand, um, this blood clotting issue that's in the headlines right now. Yesterday, the advisory committee of immunization practices met, and these are experts that are outside of the CDC and outside of the FDA, and they met, like you said, out of an abundance of caution because our monitoring system is working, and it um, basically signaled that there were these reports of blood clots. And in this case, they're these specific type of blood clots. So you may hear CVST thrown around, and that means cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. And that's just a clot in the brain, and it's not allowing the blood to drain from the brain. So I think this, you know, the biggest thing is this was done out of an abundance of caution because this is six cases out of 6.8 million people. But while we shouldn't minimize, you know, any case, we have to understand that there's a background rate that also there would be people that are getting blood blood clots just in the general population. However, this is a little bit different because they're saying that these blood clots are possibly happening in combination with something called thrombocytopenia or low platelets. Not to get into the weeds of all of that, it's still really exceedingly rare, but this pause comes really as a recommendation and not a mandate. 
And so the headlines are scary. They're, they can be misleading, but it's really showing us that the FDA and the CDC are taking this so seriously and thoroughly investigating any potential link. And this, again, is exactly how our monitoring system should be working. And this is why I trust it so much, mm. because they have not found that there is a linkage, but they're still looking into it. Mm-hmm. There is a potential that there could be a linkage mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. but we're going to know that information because we're getting real-time information from people who have gotten that vaccine. You know, and as you mentioned, this happened in six women, mm-hmm. and their age group was anywhere from 18 to 48, And so I think a lot of people like you are Mm -hmm. like, man, I I got that vaccine. Should I be worried? Mm -hmm. And the answer um, would be, you know, just to monitor yourself. But this happens within the first two to three weeks. And that this, again, is exceedingly, exceedingly rare. Right. You know, I, I can't say that enough. Right. And the only thing I would add to what Andrea has said for people who are hesitant to get vaccinated because they don't know the long-term effects of the vaccine is that we also don't know the long-term effects of the virus itself. Mm -hmm. When you've had natural immunity, a natural infection, and we do know, I don't have the exact statistic in front of me, but there is a clotting risk Mm -hmm. just by just by getting COVID. Right. Absolutely. So that's the only thing I would probably add to the conversation is just that counter that Mm -hmm. question with, Mm -hmm. we also don't know the long-term effects of the actual infection. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I I think it's no longer a question of, should I get the vaccine or not? Mm -hmm. It's does my risk of the vaccine outweigh the risk or benefit Mm -hmm. of not getting the vaccine. And we know, as Lauren, you just mentioned, that getting the COVID infection causes all kinds of issues mm-hmm. with hypercoagulability or blood clotting, as well as the, the long haul symptoms, Jen, that you mentioned right. um, that we're seeing in patients. And then also that there's severe hospitalizations and death. And those numbers are, are not quite as rare mm-hmm. As, mm-hmm. as the things that we're seeing yeah. Yeah. When I, um, of course, you know, seeing the Johnson and Johnson headlines, I immediately, you know, try to, um, get as much information as I could and dive into the research as much as I could. And there was a graphic, I believe, and I can, I'll attach it to the show notes. It was either the, I think it was the CDC put out a graphic that really put it into perspective for me. It was so helpful for me as a layperson that, you know, these, the blood clotting from the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, if that's in fact was caused by the vaccine, we don't know if it was or not, but if there's that relationship, it's six women out of 6.8 million, whereas the risk of blood clotting from being on the birth control pill, that risk was 500 to 1,200 women out of a million will experience blood clots from being on the birth control pill. Right. And I think that also, though, was any type of blood clot, too. But okay. still, okay. your so risk that's... is going to be exceedingly higher uh-huh. I see. For, for any type of yeah. clot being on birth control. Yeah. And then, of course, blood clotting from the infection. And, you know, that yes. graphic said 165,000 out of mm-hmm. a million. Yes. So, so that graphic is super helpful. Yeah. But knowing, you know, there are different types of clots, but I think sure. it just really highlights that this is exceedingly sure. rare. Yeah. And it highlights that there's risks with everything, mm-hmm. you know, including <laughs> yes. maybe especially with the birth control pill. Absolutely. I mean, we're all participating in risky behavior as we try to manage our health or prevent things um, every day. And so mm-hmm. this is no different. 
Okay, that helps. Um, all right, how about this question? Do people who have had COVID-19 already, they already had the infection, do they still need to get vaccinated? That's a great question. I hear this a lot. You know, I have friends or family that say, well, I already got COVID. Do I really have to go through mm-hmm. and, and get the vaccine? And it is recommended that you do get vaccinated even if you've had the virus. And here's the reason why. Because the natural infection... Whenever we get infected, we don't get uniform antibody levels. So that's a response that Lauren talked about in our body. So that if we were exposed to the virus, we we don't get a uniform um, cat to grab that (laughs) that mouse, if you will. And those antibodies, we're seeing that they wane at different rates for Mm -hmm. different people. And it doesn't matter if you had severe disease or asymptomatic or mild disease it's waning at all different rates. So that memory that Lauren was talking Mm -hmm. about to remember how the cat would go get the mouse can go away. Mm -hmm. And the data, you know, that's showing that vaccines actually are producing antibody levels way higher than what we're seeing actually in the worst cases of Mm -hmm. infection Mm -hmm. that people have recovered from. And they're more uniform. Mm -hmm. And right now we don't know how long they will last. We know they'll lasts at a minimum six months. And that's not to say only Mm -hmm. six months. That's just how long people have been vaccinated. And that's how long we know, Mm -hmm. which is awesome and really encouraging. But you may have heard that, you know, people who've gotten the COVID infection can be reinfected. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason because their antibody levels can wane. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're vaccinated, you get much higher production of those antibody levels and we see that they're lasting a more uniform amount of time. Okay. And and that time is to be determined still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would also just add for the future, we will most likely be asked to get a vaccine again. Mm-hmm. And that's very common because, uh, as Andrea just put it, the antibodies, the things that uh, attack the virus, the cat, so to speak, they do wane over time. And so it doesn't mean that this vaccine wasn't effective. Mm -hmm. It's just something very common when you're vaccinating against a virus and especially one that mutates and changes. Mm -hmm. And we call that a booster, right? Yes. (laughs) Might need a little booster (laughs) at some point. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that helps. That helps, um, maybe reframe our realistic expectations about Mm -hmm. the future. Is it maybe COVID shots are going to be a part of routine life Mm -hmm. as we move forward, mm-hmm. Lord willing, out of this pandemic. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Lauren, is there a reason to rush and get a vaccine sooner than later? Should we be heading out now, trying to make our appointments now? What's what's the rush? Talk, mm-hmm. talk to me about that. Yeah. I would say, yes, there is a rush. And it's been in the headlines as well. It's to decrease mutations. We're starting to hear more about the B117 than we even hear about the regular coronavirus, but it's just a result of what viruses do when they are passed from person to person. They can change a little bit. Sometimes they can change where they're not as uh, infective, but sometimes, like with the case of B117, it changed where it actually is more communicable, which means it can be passed more easily from person to person, and it's affecting younger people uh, at a larger rate than the regular coronavirus. So I would say one, to decrease uh, mutations. Uh, 
to protect the vulnerable, the ones who uh, aren't able to get a vaccine, as well as the ones who have health conditions that their immune system doesn't function properly and they're just not able to receive vaccines, they're not able to mount those immune responses. Uh, and then I would also say to reach herd immunity. And so herd immunity has probably been thrown around quite a bit (laughs) and maybe it needs some clarity. So, uh, I have another analogy (laughs) for, for herd immunity. That's helpful for me. So out here in Colorado, we are very familiar with forest fires. Mm -hmm. It's a reality that we live with. And so In the analogy of a forest fire, the fire is equal to the virus spreading. And fires catch trees and brushes and and anything, and it just jumps from thing to thing, and they can spread so rapidly. So we are the same uh, in this analogy. We are the people. We are the hosts for the virus, where it can jump from person to person Mm -hmm. to person. And what you need and what herd immunity is trying to do is to have these fire breaks in the spread. So a fire break in a forest fire is when, say, a river or something that can't burn, can't catch fire and keep spreading. And it makes the fire slow down, turn, stop a little bit. And those are really important for being able to put out the fires. And so it's the same way. So in this analogy, a vaccinated person is being a living fire break Mm -hmm. where the virus cannot spread as easily from person to person to person. So when we have enough people in the community who are vaccinated, other people are protected because the virus can't spread without a sufficient number of people, without a sufficient number of trees or brush. And so um, I just think that's an important thing to keep in Mm -hmm. mind as we're processing all of this. Yeah, so the more people vaccinated, the more breaks we have in our wildfire. Yes, and the less mutations, and then the more people who are being protected. Yeah, and and every day until we reach that herd immunity, which that it takes a lot of people Mm -hmm. getting vaccinated, right? There is no herd immunity Mm -hmm. without vaccination. And that's upwards of 70 to 85%. We don't know the exact number, but we know it, it's got to be a high number mm. of people getting vaccinated. So until we reach that, we're risking more cases, more death, more chances for the virus to mutate, as you mentioned, Lauren. Mm-hmm. And we really don't have the luxury of waiting mm. in this global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you guys for that. That's really helpful. What about, um, this is something that I hear frequently um, I hear people say, you know, COVID really isn't that deadly. You know, if you just, if you take pause and look at the numbers, um, it's not that risky. There's not that many people dying from it, or I'm not really at risk. Um, and so people are say, feel that the vaccine is not necessary for them because really th- this is not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that person? Yeah, I might say the tricky thing is we don't know for for sure who's going to develop severe infection mm-hmm. or not. You know, young, healthy people have died from the virus. And you talked about how one of the mutations is really targeting a younger age group now. And even those who survive or have mild disease, we're seeing that they can suffer from long-term consequences. And there was that that study um, published that talked about 30% of of these people that are infected, even with mild or asymptomatic disease, are having those long-haul symptoms, mm-hmm. that fatigue, the brain fog. Mm-hmm. Some are even having shortness of breath, mood changes, anxiety, depression that's long-lasting, the loss of, of taste or smell. 
So while it may not appear that you're in that high risk group, we really don't know. Hmm. You could be. Mm -hmm. And I would probably add to especially challenge believers that are listening is to change the question from, is it necessary for me Mm. to, is it necessary for others? Mm. And the answer is yes, Mm. it is necessary for others Mm. to reach herd immunity, to protect the immunocompromised, to protect the young. Um, It is necessary for other people that we receive, that we receive this vaccination. So I think for me, that's helpful because Mm -hmm. you can process all day long when you're you're just thinking about yourself and you know your uh, your health status, but when you're yeah. when you're putting these other humans in front of you, um, I think it's a different question. Absolutely, and you know the vaccines—they're near nearly perfect at preventing death and severe hospitalization. Mm-hmm. So now that we have a vaccine, we're really needing to focus on prevention mm-hmm. and protecting those that can't mm-hmm. get vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this year, you know, I've learned a lot about science, viruses mm-hmm. and vaccines. Um, we all have for better or worse, we're learning a lot. Um, but I confess that in the past I was very lazy about the flu shot, mm-hmm. um, that I just viewed the flu shot as like an inconvenience. I'm healthy. The risk of the flu to me is not a big deal. Well, now that I've, you know, lived through a pandemic with the rest of you, I realize that I need to be getting the flu shot to take care of others, that mm-hmm. I could be transmitting fl- the flu to somebody who's very vulnerable. So it definitely changed my the way I think about mm-hmm. vaccines. Whereas I, I think before the pandemic, I was thinking about the vaccine from the perspective of like, do I need this? Is this important for me? Right. Now I realize there's a huge community mm-hmm. component. So um, definitely learned a lot there. And going forward, I want to be getting the flu shot. Okay, well, let's move to our third section of this podcast, um, the third um, layer that we want to talk about. Let's say we have a listener who, you know, you guys have given them some great information. You've corrected some of the myths that we're hearing in the media. You guys have spoken to us about how quality these trials are, how quality the data is, how quality the vaccines are. So let's say a listener's now convinced they're going to go ahead and get the vaccine. Um, that's not really where misconceptions stop. We're finding that <laughs> there's still some confusion after you get the vaccine. So let's talk about misconceptions that people have following vaccination. Um, I think maybe one that we hear the most about is why do we still need to be wearing masks and socially distancing after we get the vaccine? Yeah, I think that is tricky because we are ready to shed those things. We want to be done with them. Better to be back to normal. Yes. I think essentially we are still just all hands on deck trying to prevent the spread of coronavirus. And these have been shown to be a great way of doing that. And I was also even listening to something this morning where the reason we didn't have an influenza or a flu outbreak is probably due to these masks that we've all been wearing. Interesting. Yeah, yeah definitely <laughs> at the hospital, we've had we've not seen the respiratory season that we typically mm-hmm. see. So it, it is preventing a, a lot of things. I'd, I'd also add that it takes about two weeks after you get vaccinated, after you Mm -hmm. get your last dose to build that protective immunity against the virus. 
So in the, in that time, you could still be infected with COVID-19 and you could still be transmitting that. So that would be another really important reason to mask up, to be washing your hands. But you know, we're, we're seeing some really great stuff. So really great news coming out that vaccines, they're not only preventing the spread of severe disease, but they're helping to reduce your risk of asymptomatic disease. Okay. So in the beginning... When the trials came out, we thought, well, why get vaccinated if it's not going to decrease transmission? Mm. And it's it's not that it didn't decrease transmission. It's just that's not what we were studying at the time. The priority was, do they decrease hospitalization and death? And that's what we were looking at. But now we've had more time that we can look at that information. And we're seeing that it does decrease um, your risk for asymptomatic disease And along with that, it's actually decreasing viral loads. And all that means is it just makes it less likely that you could transmit the virus if you were infected. So while we're getting all this good news, there's still a lot we don't know. And and hopefully, Lauren, you can walk us through what the CDC recommends of of what we do um, after we're vaccinated if we've been exposed yeah yeah that's one thing that we i definitely have heard about is that if that you're you're gonna still have to quarantine yes talk to us about that yeah this has been brought up to me before and so i checked cdc before i came here today just to make sure that nothing changed but if you are fully vaccinated which andrea defined as being two weeks post your second vaccine if you have moderna or pfizer or your first dose of johnson and johnson then you do not need to stay away from others unless you have symptoms or if you live in some sort of group setting. So the answer is if you are fully vaccinated and you come in contact with someone who has COVID-19, unless you're showing symptoms, you do not need to quarantine. Okay. So that's a relief. Yeah. That's a relief. Yeah. And the CDC is also saying that if you're fully vaccinated, that you can commune with others Mm -hmm. who are fully vaccinated in the same house without a mask, Mm -hmm. which is awesome. Yes. We can take this off now, <laughs> right. which is great. So we're seeing some awesome changes and improvements mm-hmm. um, in our lives kind of going back to normal, but there's still people that aren't vaccinated and we still have that vulnerable population mm-hmm. that we really need to protect and be mindful of. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is Getting vaccinated is excellent. It's our best shot at returning to normal personally and as a community, but they're not perfect. The vaccines are not perfect. So there, are, there will is potential infection after you get vaccinated, but viral load is lower. Risk yes. of hospitalization and death is so much lower. And even asymptomatic disease. So Transmission is really, lower. really, really good signs. Mm-hmm. We just are still learning so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you made a good point, Andrea, too, is like, there's some things we don't know yet because we just haven't tested for it. Um, um, but as we test for it, we're finding really excellent outcomes. We're hearing better right. news with mm-hmm. every test that we, right. we and go I, through. I think that's the great part about science is we're ready to say we just don't know yet. Yeah. And I think that gets misconstrued in the yeah. media as, well, this doesn't help right. this. And it's just that hasn't been tested yet. And so we can't accurately say mm-hmm. that that's how it how it works or, or what it does. Yeah. That's so really always helpful. more to come. And that's why things are changing every day. Mm-hmm. We're learning more and more about it. Yeah. 
Great. Thank you guys. So you um, two have been so helpful in helping us understand some of the science, you know, under, I, as I said, in the beginning of this episode, I really want to look at this issue from the perspective of what is true. What is the real data? What is the real science? What is true? But then secondly, how can we think about this biblically? So that for me as a Christian thinker and writer and podcaster, that's what's really interesting to me. I mean, that's the whole point of the All Things podcast as I think about things through a Christian lens. And so that's what I want to take this next section um, and the, this final section of the podcast to talk about. So the data on who is willing and who is hesitant to get vaccinated is really interesting to me. Here is what recent data from Pew Research says. And I'm quoting from um, Pew Research. Among religious groups, atheists are the most likely to say they would get a vaccine, while white evangelical Protestants are the least likely. So to break that down a little bit, 9 in 10, 90% of atheists said they would definitely or probably get a vaccine or they already had received one. Around 8 in 10 or 80% of agnostics said that. 77% of Catholics said that. Now, the share gets considerably smaller among Black Protestants. It's 64% said they would definitely or probably get a vaccine or already had one. And among white evangelical Protestants, only 54% said they would definitely or probably get a vaccine. Slightly under half of white evangelicals, so 45%, said they would definitely or probably not get a vaccine. COVID-19. So in sum, this Pew research shows us that white evangelicals are less likely to take the vaccine than members of any other American religious group. And white evangelicals are the least likely to say they would consider the health effects on their community when making a decision to be vaccinated. Only 48% of white evangelicals said they would consider the community health effects a lot when deciding to be vaccinated. That compares with 70% of Black Protestants and 65% of Catholics and 68% of religiously unaffiliated Americans. So really, this is us. You know, we three gals sitting here recording this podcast, we are white evangelicals. And I would imagine that most of my listeners, many of my listeners, probably the share, the the lion's share of my listeners are white evangelicals. So this is an in-house issue here that I would love to take a few minutes to look at. I think there are so many issues at play. I I mean, I, I understand we are on the heels of a year where I think many evangelicals are, their, their trust in the government is waning. We are losing trust in the government. There's a sense that the government reached too far when they closed down churches or schools or otherwise. I think evangelicals feel weary of government mandates or even just government instructions or government encouragement. I think many are concerned about the quickness of vaccine development, the potential risks, the side effects. We've talked about all of those things. Hopefully, we've spoken to those issues in a way that's been helpful or and even satisfying to many listeners. But I think another layer of this is that many white evangelicals have the luxury of not worrying as much about contracting the virus because so many of us are protected in a number of ways. Many of us have access to great health care. We aren't struggling with as many comorbidities as other populations are. Many of us can work from the safety and the comfort of our own homes. I think maybe we're not out in the community as much as other populations, which honestly is probably a problematic issue in and of itself that we need to be wrestling with and maybe talking about on other All Things episodes. I want to be careful here to say 
really careful with my words and choose them very carefully. I know that there are reasons certain individuals remain vaccine hesitant. Even if you've been won over by the arguments that we've made on this episode, undoubtedly there are some listeners who feel like they have a specific extenuating circumstance that makes them hesitant to get vaccinated. And so we three in this room acknowledge that. Lauren and Andrea, what I want to ask you um, as we dive into this a little bit, why is it important just from your scientific pharmacy background, why is it important for us to get vaccinated from a community point of view? Well, I'll just share why I got vaccinated because that kind of sums up the community point of view. You know, I was was really emotional after I got my Mm -hmm. first dose of vaccine. The science, it's remarkable. And I just thank God for these brilliant minds that were able to bring this to us. We, as you mentioned, we've had so much heartache and loss this year and this disruption Mm -hmm. of normal life. I finally felt really hopeful Mm -hmm. once we had the vaccines disseminated and we're able to actually get them. I didn't just get the vaccine to protect myself, but I was hoping I could give antibodies to Mm -hmm. my baby who Mm -hmm. has breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. I did it not only to protect my three-year-old daughter, not only to protect my mom and dad who are aging and in that aging population, but I, I work at a hospital every day and I see sick and immunocompromised patients in and around our community and it's heartbreaking, you know, to see the things that they have to deal with mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. And if I can love them in mm-hmm. any way, it's to protect them. Mm-hmm. And so that was my number one reason uh, to want to get a vaccine was really to protect those around me because mm-hmm. I see that population and see them suffering so mm-hmm. much. So I just think, you know, that's that's the one thing mm-hmm. that I could reach out my hand and actually do for them because mm-hmm. I can't cure their sickness. I can't cure their disease, but mm-hmm. I can help protect them. Yeah. I think we've had the privilege over the past year to watch the coronavirus vaccine rollout happen. And we had those brave frontline workers who received the vaccination first. And we've been able to watch and gather data and think about it and pray about it. But I would just say that the time for that is coming to an end, if not over, for certain populations who have access to the vaccine now. It's going to be rolling out if it's not already in your state to everyone. And so I think that the time for thinking about it is over. And I just think we probably, sometimes when you say, oh, I'm thinking about it, it can just become this lackadaisical thing that, you know, your mind moves on to the next thing. And then all of a sudden it's an afterthought. But it's now a conscious choice, and we should probably just call it that. Um, if you're making the decision not to get vaccinated, you're making the decision not to get vaccinated, and maybe just call it that and know that you're like an indecision is a decision mm. in this case. Mm. Yeah. There was a really helpful article that appeared in the online journal Public Discourse back in December, and it was written by three professors of theology, philosophy, and ethics. The article is called Why We Plan to Get Vaccinated, A Christian Moral Perspective. I'm going to link it in the show notes. Um, It was just really instructive to me personally, so I just want to share a little bit of wisdom from the article. And Andrea and Lauren, you guys have already said this so well, um, and people can go to the show notes to read more, but I want to just to quote from the article, um, this is what the authors of that article said. They say, 
Christian liberty requires that each person be free to choose whether or not to receive these new vaccines. So in other words, you know, as Christians, all three of us in this room and the authors of that article support the freedom for each person to choose to get vaccinated. So this is not an issue where church discipline would be appropriate. Mm -hmm. And individuals who forego the vaccine are not necessarily sinning. But to quote the article, vaccination is a salutary act born of Christian love for neighbor and community, not a test of faithfulness. And Andrea, you kind of said that really well. Um, And I wholeheartedly agree with the authors in this article in viewing this as an opportunity to love God and love neighbor. They say, and again, to quote them, if by being vaccinated, we can protect others from illness, then we have a corresponding obligation, given our Lord's command to love neighbors, to be vaccinated. Vaccinations not only protect me, but also protect other vulnerable members of society. So going back again, just to the article, let me quote them one more time. They say, those appealing to Christian liberty or conscience, so in other words, those who choose not to get vaccinated or indecision, as you pointed out, Lauren, that was helpful, those people have the burden of demonstrating what goods are procured, secured, or respected that surpass the goods associated with the vaccination. So to sort of interpret that, simply put, they're saying the burden of proof is on you if you decide to abstain from vaccination. There's sort of this threshold for refusing vaccination. You need to be able to demonstrate why it's better to avoid it than to get it for the good of the community. And so I just want to take a minute here too to add that we as Christians have a rich history, a really rich heritage of submitting our bodies for the good of the community. Of course, there were the first centuries of the church, you know, just after the time that Christ lived. One reason that our faith spread was that Christians were not afraid to die. The first Christians bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus. They knew that he rose from the dead. And so they put their hope solidly there. They knew that this life is not all that there is, that they too would be resurrected. Resurrected. And so that made them willing to be especially brave and eager to provide health care during plagues and pandemics. People came to faith as Christians offered themselves to care for the sick and dying. So that's our history. That's our heritage. We see it again in the 1500s. Um, we have the words of Martin Luther during the Black Plague. This is me quoting Martin Luther. This is what he says. He said, Therefore, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help (laughs) purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid persons and places where my presence is not needed in order to be not in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me. And so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. I just really appreciate Martin Luther's common sense, his very balanced approach, even 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, and one last example that I want to share is that of Jonathan Edwards. He himself received an early smallpox inoculation and encouraged his church, the congregants in his church and other Christians to do the same back in the 1700s. 
Well, Jonathan Edwards was not a very healthy man, and he actually died from smallpox following his inoculation. But what I think is so noteworthy in relation to our specific moment is that he was confident in God's sovereignty. He was confident in the science behind the ever-improving treatment of the smallpox epidemic, and he wanted to be a part of the resolution of sickness in his community. And so he offered himself up. Of course, as followers of Jesus, we have to navigate this cultural moment carefully. It is good and right for us to do our homework and not unnecessarily endanger ourselves or our families. But hopefully this episode has helped to alleviate many of the fears that you have had. Hopefully it has served to boost your confidence in the vaccines, and hopefully it has served as a reminder of the heritage of our faith and our millennia-old tradition of loving God and loving neighbor, especially during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So um, let me just close with this. We three in this room know that this is a hard topic to talk about. I will be the first to admit that I have talked about it wrongly. I, in the past several months, I've been quick to speak and I've been slow to listen in my own community. I've had to repent and thankfully I have been forgiven for when I spoke too harshly. But even though it is a hard conversation to have, and even though we will inevitably make mistakes as I have, it is a conversation that we need to be having. We do, as we set our sights on a post-pandemic reality, we've got to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So let me just close by asking you guys, Lauren and Andrea, is there, are there any pieces of wisdom or parting advice that you have for the All Things listeners? Yeah, I think that when you believe that you're right about something. So in our case, when we obviously believe we're right about the vaccine, <laughs> that pride and self-righteousness are lurking and they are intertwined <laughs> into feeling right. Mm -hmm. And so I think it should serve as a red flag for us to, uh, to check our spirits and the way that we're communicating. And to borrow the words of, of Paul, if we are right, but we have not love, we are a resounding gong and we're not going to be heard. And so I think loving others in, in this case can mean patiently bearing and um, having the conversation, maybe having another conversation, um, repenting when we've overstepped or when we've offended. And so I think it is tricky to navigate, but I think the spirit is there to, uh, to guide us as we're having these conversations with brothers and sisters. Mm, that's good. Yeah, that's really helpful. Lauren, I, I think it is through those, you mentioned maybe multiple discussions, you know, it's through those loving and empathetic discussions that we're really going to be able to help educate each other and hopefully address any misinformation and then just encourage each other in, in truth. And I think that's so important. And, mm -hmm. and Jen, you hit it on the head that even though this is a hard and difficult conversation, it needs to be happening mm -hmm. and we need to be having those. And I think as we've mentioned, vaccine hesitancy comes from different places for mm -hmm. different people. So I really think listening, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, think if we can be empathetic and listen to where those concerns are coming from. And then I know that those concerns for the majority of people are not stemming from anything, but them wanting to protect themselves mm -hmm. and their families mm -hmm. and their communities. So how can we talk about that and, and talk about the best way to protect themselves and their family mm -hmm. and their community and make the most informed decision mm -hmm. they can. Mm -hmm. 
Great. Well, you guys have helped us think about this and you have um, spoken with empathy and compassion and a lot of science and data as well. So I appreciate your perspectives and thank you for lending your wisdom to this episode. Um, It's been just so valuable to have your voices um, with us this time. So, and for all of you out there, thank you for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. So we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.